up on today's show, more discussion around the disturbing discovery at the Kamloops residential school site. We'll hear from Perry Smith, a man who had a number of family members go through that very school. We'll hear his story. Medicine Hat has ended chronic homelessness. And NASA setting their sights on Venus. They have selected two missions to study our nearest neighbor in the solar system. So every day this week, we've talked about the residential school system that you know, we're now forced to reckon with in this country because of the discovery in Kamloops. Um, And in a lot of ways, it's really, really sad that it took this discovery in Kamloops to elevate it to the point now where everybody's talking about it and everybody is starting to have a reassessment of their beliefs and their views around this situation. Um, It's positive in a lot of ways, I think. We're having a lot of discussion. Um, The Indigenous Studies course at the University of Alberta, the free course that I talked about yesterday, has seen a massive, massive uptake in people wanting to enroll in this course. It's free. It's online. Uh, You can do it at your convenience. Uh, They've seen over 3,000 people uh, apply this week alone. So people want to learn. Uh, I think this was such a jarring revelation to people who weren't familiar with it. And that's the important thing. Um, Our next guest is Perry Smith. His grandmother went to that residential school in Kamloops. Um, Perry joins us now. Um, Perry, thanks so much for joining us this morning. I, I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with us. Uh, thank you for having me on. So, Perry, you, uh, I mean, you, you, all kinds of different work. You're a children's author, you're a, you're a powwow dancer, you're a director of instruction in the Abbotsford School District. Um, let's just talk about this whole news that came out last week and, and what it meant, because we've heard a lot of people talking about residential schools this week. I haven't spoken with anyone with such a personal connection like yours, though. I'm wondering, how did this news affect you? What are you feeling? Sure. Uh, I'd like to start by acknowledging that uh, I'm uh, residing in the traditional ancestral territory of the Samath and the Mathwe First Nations um, here in uh, Abbotsford, B.C. Uh, you know, uh, hearing about the news of, of, the, of the burial ground that was found was, you know, uh, uh, first off, not a surprise mm-hmm. that it was found as, you know, uh, elders talk through their accounts of, of being at residential school that that children were buried at, at that site so you know uh, from a from a perspective of the oral tradition uh, it was known that it was there I, I think uh, the, the the fact that there's there's um, you know tangible evidence of, of grave sites is is you know it's it's a sobering thing to 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 understand, uh, to think more deeply about, um, to to wonder if uh, if uh, children that are buried there are related to you, uh, as you know, many many of our family attended the Kamloops uh, Indian Residential School. Uh, you know, uh, my my grandparents, uh, aunts and uncles, uh, cousins that that were there, and uh, you know, uh, it, it's a really uh, sobering fact to, to kind of uh, come to grips with that that you know something so horrific could have happened and and families weren't um, families weren't informed mm-hmm. about their their loved ones and their children being uh, buried at a school site uh, as 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 a person with small kids you know I have a I have a son that's nine and six and three to think that 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 could have been the 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 uh, the experience of my kids is 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 horrifying. 
Yeah, it, it, it's absolutely shocking. Um, as you say, it didn't come as a surprise to people with connections to this school and other schools across the country, to be quite frank. What kind of stories did you hear from the survivors in your family? What did they tell you about their time in those schools? Did they talk about it? Yeah, you know, uh, growing up, my, my grandparents and aunts didn't talk about their experience in residential school. We, we all knew there was a residential school there. Is You know, uh, 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 that, that site has been used uh, since the residential school closed for, for other purposes. Uh, so we knew that it existed, but, but didn't hear any stories. Uh, and it wasn't until I was in, in my undergraduate degree to be a teacher that one of my assignments was to interview a residential school survivor. Uh, and I asked my grandma if she would be interviewed and and she kind of begrudgingly or tentatively said yes and 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 she took the time you know a couple hours to tell me stories about you know all all from being picked up uh on on the reserve by a cattle truck with the with the indian agent and you know kids all stacked in the back of a cattle truck and taken off to school and uh, I remember her telling the story that she would daydream that when they came over the hill to see the school, that it would be burnt down uh, because she didn't want to be there. Uh, and then the stories of being separated from uh, from family, you know, the girls weren't allowed to talk to the boys. Uh, and so not being able to, to see your family members or talk to them. And, 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 and moreover, I think the, the punishments uh, that they received for, uh, for, you know, living their culture, for speaking mm-hmm. their language. They were harshly punished and for having anything to do with their, uh, with their Indigenous culture to make to be, feel bad about who they were. Um, and, and then, you know, the stories of starvation. Uh, all of my aunts and, and grandparents now that have talked about it uh, since this news coming out, talking about always being hungry. The, the lack of food that was was given to them, despite uh, you know the, the the work that they did in in on the farm, uh, the boys working in in the barns with cattle and and chickens and pigs uh, that produced food, and and my grandma talking about working in the kitchens making bread and making butter, uh, but none of that food went to the kids. It was either sold or it was consumed by the staff. Uh, so you know, the, then stories of, of her and other kids having to, to find ways to get food and having to steal food to, to survive. Um, I, I mean, I could go on and, yeah, and on, yeah. but uh, it's just really the stories of, of neglect and, and, and ill treatment. And, and I think, moreover, um, the goal of the school to, to take the Indian out of the child right. and to, to, to make them feel... feel uh, feel poorly about being Indigenous. Perry, that's what I want to talk to you about, because we've had a couple of callers, as we've talked about this over the course of the week, and you know what, people are trying to rationalize, and people are trying to, you know, um, minimize in some ways and things like that, and they say, well, they had good intentions, and they were trying to provide them a better life and an education. Just as somebody who knows people who went through these schools and has spoken with them, was there any any indication that that's what this was about? Was Or was it, as you say... To, to, to kill the native child, to, to, to eradicate the culture. I mean, what was the point, as you understand it, of these schools? Yeah, I, 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 think, I think there's, there's the, the uh, it's the distinction between the intention and the impact. 
that that the intention may have been to 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 serve children to to bring them into the dominant culture uh uh but but the strategies that were used in 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 punishment for for speaking your language for being told that uh that your culture was dirty and wrong and heathenistic and and uh and uh, the the segregation from family, um, th- these these strategies had an impact that, regardless of the intent of of the school or or the religious organization, uh, doesn't justify uh, uh, the, the goals and the intent of of the education. Um, it, it wouldn't pass muster today, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 I think that 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 despite uh, the want. Uh, for for uh, for us to justify the intent of, of the government and for the religious institutions that ran the schools uh, that that we can't uh, we can't minimize the impact that it that it's had uh, generationally on 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 indigenous people yeah we need to reckon with it um a last question before I let you go Perry I know you're not in that part of the province anymore but you're close Um what what's 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 being felt among the indigenous community in British Columbia following this discovery? Is it sadness? Is it validation? Is it a mix? What 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 are the feelings? No, oh, I, I think it's a it's a it's a big mix of of reactions, right? Uh, I, I think for, in in some regards, it's it's a validation that uh, that you know the people that tell the stories uh, knew that they were true, and and their family knew that they were true, but. It's validation to the people that that uh, that you know have 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 said uh, you know invalidating comments about uh, when are Indigenous people going to get over residential schools and what can't we get past this? Right. Uh, that I think that it, it validates the fact that this is this this is trauma that's mm-hmm. intergenerational and it's going to take time. Yeah. I think I think many many people are 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 saddened by the fact that this opens a, a wound for many, for many people, uh, that there, there's families that, that have never known what happened to their family members. And this, this, uh, this uh, uh, perhaps opens a chapter where, where they can uh, find some closure to at least knowing what happened to them. So I, I think there's, there's just mixed emotions. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. Um, Perry, I, I can't thank you enough for joining us this morning. It, it's stories like yours that uh, I think uh, people need to hear to have a better understanding of this, as difficult as it is. So uh, thank you once again for joining us this morning. Thank you. That is Perry Smith, who is an educator and um, a children's author, a powwow dancer, and as you heard, had a number of family members in that school. taking your calls on uh, anything that you want to talk about today and uh, just taking a look at the callers uh, waiting in line here. People want to talk about residential schools and, and that's good. We need to. We need to talk about it. Let's start with Keith. Good morning, Keith. You're on the air. Morning. How are you? Very well, thank you. What's uh, on your mind? Well, you know, as Canadians, we've so long prided ourselves on being such nice people and, you know, we like to point fingers south of the border at how awful things can be south of the border and we think we're nice. But I think it's worth remembering, you know, a lot of people who are saying, you know, our First Nations people have to get over this. We don't say that about the Holocaust, you know. And my parents yeah. lived through World War II in Europe, 
and 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 remember that you know my father's gone now but you know i'll say this too you know it's it's amazing you know we shudder at the fact that joseph Goebbels brief and 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 the nazi uh hierarchy would speak of the jewish problem and the final solution of the jews but if you read canadian history duncan scott campbell who was the superintendent of indian affairs in the early 1920s in canada uh, there is, you can go online and find his quote how he refers to the indian problem and we need to find quote a final solution to our indian problem it's quite amazing that we shudder at the nazis saying those words but 20 years before that the Canadian superintendent of Indian Affairs was saying pretty well exactly the same thing. Well, Keith, you know, I mean, their intentions were pretty clear. We talk about Bishop Grandin, and now there's a big push to uh, have the mur- uh, mural removed and and to have the, the LRT station in Edmonton uh, changed to a different name. He, he was very clear about, um, you know, his intentions. He's the one whose quote is, uh, you know, basically we want to remove the um, Indian from the child, and we want to make them right. ashamed of their culture so if they think of that you know they're they they're ashamed and they feel badly and i mean you're right it was eradication it, it was forced assimilation and yeah it, it, we need to deal with it right we need to accept that and reckon with that we absolutely do and i think you know i, I don't think the language duncan scott campbell used should be lost on us that uh, only 20 years later something we find abhorrent in history was actually first uttered before in canada with right. just a different people yeah. Exactly. Good stuff. Okay, thanks, Keith. Yeah, the quote from Bishop Grandin, um, this is his direct quote, uh, states that the goal of the schools was, quote, to instill in the children a profound distaste for Native life, that they should feel humiliated when reminded of their origins. When they graduate from our institutions, the children have lost everything Native except their blood. That was the goal of the schools. It's pretty clear. It wasn't about an education. Terry, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Good. Good. Um, calling about the res. I'm. I hope you're okay with my comments here, or whatever. But um, residential schools, all of this, the graves, it's horrible. It, it really is she. And I mean, Mr. Trudeau needs to make this right. Yes, he needs to stop this. But I live in rural Alberta, she. Uh, my issue is, I mean. I agree. Uh, reserves have to have clean water. We got to take care of these people. We came here, but my family came here in the 1800s, Shay. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they wanted a better life in Canada too. And what bothers me now, it seems like the indigenous people's hatred towards us, the white man, is getting worse, and it scares me. You know, my sons see it, um, especially like I say here in rural Alberta. You know. Uh, privileged white boy, um, go back, settler, where you come from. I can understand their feelings and their hurt and how they've been treated or whatever, but, but that's what I want. How do we come to a point where we can get along with the indigenous people? Um, you know, because it's true, Shay. No, I, I, I know what you're saying. They, they, they hate us, Ray. Well, or they hate the white man. I, I don't want to I'm talk saying? about sweeping general. I, I understand what you're saying, Terry. I think you, 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 you go to something that is important and something that we need to talk about. Because, you know, yeah. in, in my reading about this and stuff like that, when you talk about this kind of thing that happened in their history, right? And it's still being That's felt. Right. I mean, we, we've talked to two guys on the air so far today that have firsthand yeah. personal experience with this. That kind of I generational know. trauma skews the way that you see the world. That kind of pain and suffering doesn't go away. So when you talk I about know. we need to make it right, you're right. That's how we make this better. 
we do we do we do need to make this right but i also want to uh, like uh, uh reaching out to indigenous people please understand you know what these doorknobs did way back then you know i don't agree with it most people please don't hate me don't hate my yeah. kids forever you know what i mean and no, i hear what you're saying yeah like a piece of garbage or whatever because it is shay it's building there's a lot of people like me that i know that they're getting even more mad at indigenous because they're saying like since reconciliation started everything you know i i had friends that i went to school with native native friends the last four or five they won't even talk to me anymore they tell me you go back, whatever, and I'm like, man, I didn't do anything. Right? No, I yeah. didn't do anything, and that's all I'm saying. I hear Shane, what you're is, saying. Yeah, I know what you. Yeah. And- I know what you're saying, Terry. You know, I mean, you're talking about your own personal lived experience, and there's a real danger in applying that to, well, this is the way it is in our society, and we can't do that, right? Uh, I'm not going to discount what's happening to you. I don't know what's happening to you, um, but I don't want to come away from us saying, well, yeah, look at this. Now we've got everybody fighting. I don't know if that's necessarily the truth in all instances. The fact of the matter is, though, um, a lot of the problems that we have now, and we've had other guests on the air uh, on the Chorus Radio Network over the course of this week, is talking about, you know, if you want to have a better understanding of why we have so many problems, this is why that we cause them, right, with the trauma and the hurt and the heartache and the destruction of the culture and the family systems and all the rest of it. That stuff doesn't just go away. It's not like, oh, now we just move into the new world, everything's fine. No, this will take time, and it'll be hard, and it's a tremendous amount of work. Really, you know, if you think about it, it's it's kind of uh, an incredible announcement that came out of our province this week. Um, you know, eliminating homelessness, eliminating homelessness, That's it's a pretty lofty goal. There's a lot of cities that have stated that is, in fact, their goal, of course, that that's the dream, right? But none have managed to even come close, let alone accomplish this feat. Well, almost none, because Medicine Hat Alberta has done it. They have actually ended homelessness in the city of Medicine Hat. So lots to get into here. Let's chat now with Tim Richter, who is the president and CEO of the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. Tim, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Hey, good morning. Great to be here. You know, we talk about ending homelessness. Let's just define Mm -hmm. what that means. There's no longer anybody homeless in Medicine Hat. What exactly are the parameters to say we've ended homelessness? That's right. So what Medicine Hat achieved this week was uh, what we are calling uh, functional zero and chronic homelessness. So functional zero means that Medicine Hat has less than three uh, people experiencing chronic homelessness at any given time in a month. And it's really a measure to make sure that they have a system in place uh, to make uh, homelessness rare, brief, and non-recurring. So it's also important to note uh, that this is, uh, we're talking about chronic homelessness. So mm-hmm. these are people that have been homeless six months or more. So there are still a handful of other folks experiencing homelessness in Medicine Hat. But right now, they're, once they've, uh, they've achieved this goal of ending chronic homelessness, uh, they're now turning their attention to the elimination of all homelessness uh, in Medicine Hat. Um- it, it, it's amazing. How, how did they do it, I guess, is the question, and I imagine it's a very long answer, but mm-hmm. what did they do that managed to actually bring an end to chronic homelessness? Well, you know, Cole's notes, uh, I mean, the, the short answer is they've, they've done a, a few things really well. One is they decided that they were going to focus on the elimination of homelessness. That's, that's uh, honestly the, one of the biggest decisions to make, uh, aside from managing the pro, uh, problem or assuming we're kind of left with it. 
But, you know, they pioneered a lot of things before anybody else was doing it. So they were among the first in Canada to use Housing First uh, at scale. We see that being done at Edmonton and cities around the uh, province as well. Okay, what's Housing First? Uh, Just explain that to me. Housing First is an approach to housing people experiencing homelessness. That means basically you take them directly from the streets, uh, shelters, and put them in housing, uh, rental housing, and, and provide them the support they need to stay there. Okay. Um, it's you know it's an approach that turned the homeless system on its head because it used to be that we would say, well, you got to get better from addiction or mental illness or whatever else uh, before you'd be uh, receive housing, and this just turns it on its head and puts people directly in. It was a real revolution uh, at the time. And now it's standard practice. Okay. Um, they also built, you know, figured out how to build a coordinated homeless system. So a system that would see people, you know, at risk of homelessness, see people as they're about to experience homelessness coming into the homeless system on the way through and, and out. And a big piece of that is, you know, just having that real-time data on, on, on people experiencing homelessness and just focusing on that continuous improvement. There's a lot of stuff they did, but the big thing is that... Uh, uh, Medicine Hat has been pioneering this stuff with other Alberta cities since 2009. Um, and as the, the stuff they've done is actually, they've not only proven homelessness can end, but they've laid the groundwork for the rest of the country to do it. Yeah, exactly. Now, it was a... It was an integrated response, right? Like, it's not like they had one agency that went out and did this. It, it took almost a full community response to get to this point. Well, and that's exactly the genius of it, right? Like, they brought together uh, under the uh, leadership of the Medicine Hat Community Housing Society and Jamie Rogers and a couple of others uh, there. They brought the community together. They had, they, they were among the first in the country to figure out, you know, how to really bring a community together um, around the problem of homelessness and focus on ending homelessness. And it's a really interesting, dynamic, community-driven response that, that I think they should be very proud of. Now, this framework they've built and demonstrated as being successful, is it in place mm-hmm. in other cities right now? And is it something, yeah. I would imagine if I'm, if, if I'm involved in running a city anywhere, I, I would be flocking to them to try and get the information. Is that happening? Yeah, so uh, Medicine Hat has joined uh, something called Build for Zero Canada, which is led by the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. We have 39 cities around the country that we're working with. Uh, those cities are focused on any chronic or veteran homelessness. London, Ontario was the first city in Canada to end veteran homelessness in the same way the Medicine Hat ended chronic homelessness. Uh, and they use an approach very similar to Medicine Hat. Um, but yes, there's a growing uh, number of Canadian cities who are like, hang on a second, what is, what's Medicine Hat yeah. done? What's Edmonton doing? How, well, we should be doing that as well. And there's 10 cities that uh, we're in contact with now that have actually achieved reductions in chronic homelessness. Now, I, and a couple of listeners are sending in texts, and I wonder if there's any relevance to this at all, the fact that, you know, they're, they're a smaller city than some of the other cities that we mm-hmm. can't typically hear about homeless being an issue. Can it be scaled up? You know, if it works in a city of 65,000, can it work in a city of a million? Yes, absolutely. Edmonton is proving that. Edmonton has reduced overall homelessness 46% since uh, 2009, the same basic time frame as Medicine Hat. Uh, I think it's important to know, you know, Medicine Hat, it is a smaller place, but on a per capita basis, their homelessness was every bit as bad as Calgary or Edmonton. And, uh, you know, they're actually the, they were actually the perfect size to pioneer and test some of these things yeah. uh, that we are now scaling, for sure. Um, I'm wondering, you talk about the, the Housing First initiative and why that is such an important shift in the thinking instead of saying, okay, deal with your addiction or your mental health or whatever it is, uh, and then we'll worry about getting you housed. Why is it so important to house them and then uh, focus on those other issues? Um, just why is that such an important distinction? 
Well, I, I think it's important because the housing is the foundation of recovery, right? So people, uh, it's very difficult for uh, people to address uh, mental health challenges or address addiction challenges or trauma or other things, if even things as simple as finding a job, uh, and not simple, but as, as basic as finding a job, you can't do that without an address or the safety and security of, of a home. If you are in the crisis of homelessness and you are, imagine you're, you're, you're sort of constantly in that fight or flight mode. You're yeah. constantly thinking about your survival, survival and your yeah. health. And so it's, it's the, a home becomes a basis of recovery. Uh, and the first step, not the last step in, in that recovery process. Uh, are there any other cities like, you know, across the country that are close to achieving this, following this model? I mean, will we uh, hear more announcements like this soon? For sure. Well, you, you know, we're seeing some really incredible progress out of Fort McMurray, out okay. of Edmonton. Um, I think there's other, Alberta is the only uh, province that I'm aware of uh, that has achieved province-wide reductions in, in homelessness. Um, but we're seeing other communities in, on the East Coast, uh, several in Ontario. Uh, the province of Ontario actually mandated um, uh, the, one of the main elements of uh, Hamilton's or Medicine Hat's success uh, with real-time data and all of their, uh, all 47 cities that are there. So, you know, Toronto is even looking at the stuff Medicine Hat's done. Amazing. Some real progress. That's great to hear. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate your time. Thank you for the time. That is Tim Richter, who is the president and CEO of the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. And as he said, Alberta seems to be leading the way on this front. Uh, Great strides being made in Medicine Hat, obviously. And as he's reporting, similar gains being made across the province, especially in Fort McMurray. I'd like to take a little time and talk about some of the amazing things that human beings are doing. And on this show, we've talked a lot about Mars, right? We've had uh, one of the scientists behind the helicopter that's flying around up there, all kinds of really cool stuff. Uh, The incredible work that's being done on the surface of the red planet right now as we speak. And in a few years, maybe we're going to be having very similar discussions about another planet, our closest neighbor and a planet that in many ways is the most similar to ours, Venus. NASA has announced two new missions to Venus. Tom Wagner is a scientist with NASA's Discovery Program, and he joins us now. Tom, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So Mars missions, of course, as you know, uh, full well, have been the very dominant story in space exploration, and they're they're amazing. They're so fascinating. Uh, But now we're switching our sights to Venus. Um, Tell us about Venus. Just give us the break. It, It is our closest neighbor in the solar system, right? Right. And one of the reasons we think Venus is so important is it's roughly the same size as the Earth. And it's also in what we call the Goldilocks zone. That is where we're far enough from the sun that it's not too crazy hot like Mercury. But we're also not so far out where we don't have liquid water. But Venus is so different from the Earth, and we're trying to figure out why. Um, We think it might have actually been the first habitable planet in the solar system, too. So at one point in time, it may have been like almost Earth-like? One of the theories is that in the, you know, the Earth, the solar system is about four and a half billion years old. We think that early on, Venus might have had an ocean earlier than the Earth, and it may have been a good abode for life. Wow. Okay. Now, two new missions uh, being announced to Venus. Uh, Break them down for us. Uh, The first one sort of deals primarily with the atmosphere, right? Right. So there's two missions. One is Da Vinci Plus, and that's the one that's going to go to Venus. 
um, and drop what we call a descent sphere through the atmosphere. And it's got inlets on it that are going to take in gases from the atmosphere and analyze what they're made of. And one of the amazing things is this. If you look at trace gases, things like noble elements like xenon and stuff, we're able to figure out the history of the atmosphere. Was it formed late? Is it continuously forming out of volcanoes on Venus? Did Venus ever have a big reservoir of water on its surface? We can get all that kind of information just from the chemical makeup of the atmosphere itself. Amazing. Wow. Okay. The other mission, that one's a little different. Tell us about that one. Yeah, the other mission is called Veritas, and Veritas has got a radar on it. It's going to orbit the planet for two years, and it's going to map the, the shape and the height of the surface very, very precisely. And using that kind of information, we're going to figure out, you know, how big are the mountains? Are there active volcanoes? The measurements are so precise, we can actually see if there are, like, active faults and if things are deforming. Um, Veritas also carries on it an infrared mapper. And what we're hoping to do is see if we can map the composition of the surface rocks. And here's the big question. Is the surface of Venus covered with rocks like we see at Iceland? Or is it more like Canada and the U.S. where there are granites and sedimentary rocks around? And looking at wavelengths of light in the infrared, we can see that. So the big point is this, though, right? So we have one mission really focused on the atmosphere, another mission really focused on the surface. We're going to get a new perspective on this planet, kind of at the rewrite the textbooks level. Okay, a couple of things. First of all, if you're mapping it that in, in that kind of detail, I know that's, you know, when you take a look at a lot of the maps of, of Earth, you can sort of tell what's happened historically by the way the geology is situated now. So could that provide some indication to what that planet was like a long time ago based on, you know, if there was water and things like that? That would have an effect on what you're mapping, wouldn't it? Absolutely. So I'll give you an example. Um, there are these, these what we call the enigmatic tessera terrains, these places on Venus that we don't know what they are. They look a little bit like mountain belts on Earth, like they're all kind of munged up and there's a lot of topography. And they also have very, very weird signatures in terms of the light that comes off of them. And so we think those might be more akin to continents on Earth. And then the other areas are more low-lying and more flat. It might be more like Hawaii, Iceland, or the bottom of the ocean floor. Okay, look, why do we care about the geology? Here's the big question, right? We want to understand how Venus works as a planet, how it works as a machine. The Earth has plate tectonics, right? The plates move around and bump and grind into each other when we get volcanoes at the boundaries and other things. As far as we know, the Earth may be the only planet that has that. The moon doesn't have it. Mercury doesn't have it. We're not sure if Mars had it. But if it had that, right? That's one more piece in the puzzle of Venus. Like, could it be? And also, if these tessera are actually like our continents, we think that the continents on the Earth form because the Earth had a lot of water around. And when the water gets subducted, you know, you've heard of places like the Marianas Trench? Sure, yeah. yeah. When, a, when a plate gets pushed down into the deep Earth, it melts and releases water and causes volcanoes on top that are different. They're the real explosive volcanoes like you hear about around the Pacific and things. Anyhow, long-winded story short, right? That's the stuff that ultimately becomes continents. So as we piece together the geologic history, in the same way that people try to piece together the geologic history of an area to figure out where there might be fossils or mines or oil, we put together this story on Venus, and it says, hey, Venus once may have been very Earth-like with these oceans. Um, Now, The next question you might ask is like, all right, Tom, what does that really mean? 
we're trying to figure out where life forms. You know, we don't right. really know. It always comes back to life, right, Tom? Yeah, exactly. And we have these other things that are called exoplanets. Like now we have the ability to see planets around other stars. Like we finally have the telescopes to see it. Well, guess what? The easiest ones for us to see are the planets like Venus that are hot and give off a lot of light. So anyhow, what we do is we put all this information together. We want to understand how life formed and evolved in our solar system, where it might be hiding out, how it might have gotten its start. And then we want to apply that to the universe. It, it, it's amazing. A couple of questions from listeners, and, and it, it's an obvious one, but it, it's really fascinating to me, too. You know, what do you do about things like, you know, the atmosphere pressure and the temperature on Venus? How do you build a machine that can withstand that? It's hard. And, <laughs> you know, that it's a corrosive atmosphere with sulfuric acid. It's so hot it can melt lead. So the Da Vinci Plus Descent Sphere, which is going to go through the atmosphere, it's got a big heat shield on the front that eventually it drops off. And then it's like a beryllium sphere that's designed to withstand the heat for about an hour. And so from the time it drops from the carrier spacecraft, it's only about less than an hour for it to get to the ground. And then when it hits the ground, we think it'll survive for about 10 minutes or so and send some more data back is our hope. And that's it, hey. Uh, What's the timeline on this? When do you hope to have these things headed there and getting the information back to you? 2028 to 2030. You know, when you ask, how do they survive? Well, we spend a lot of years building them. You know, they take five, <laughs> six, seven years to build. And, you know, that's also, though, when you hear about those Mars rovers that last yeah. 14 years and stuff, right? It's because, you know, they might have a prime mission that's only a couple of years, but they're so well built that they just last a lot longer. So cool. I, I love it, Tom. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You bet. Um, Tom Wagner who is a NASA discovery scientist. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.